Um, boy, I love that hymn. In some ways, we could sing that one every week, or at least listen to it. Uh, because I do think that is such an important question. Who is this? So many of the, the challenges, so many of the barriers uh, to coming to know the real Jesus is to think we've got it figured out. Um, and, and that's actually part of the, the issue going on in the story that we're going to look at today, is this lawyer comes to test Jesus. But you understand, in testing Jesus, he thinks he already knows who Jesus is. He thinks he knows the answer to the question. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to that. Luke chapter 10. I know it's printed in the bulletin there. Follow me as I read. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pray with me briefly. Lord, we do thank you um, for the profound way that Jesus responds to this question. And as... The Samaritan had compassion on the one who was half dead. Lord, thank you for the way you not only call us to have compassion, but to show us who has become a true neighbor to us. And we pray that as we explore this parable, we will see uh, a, new, uh, a new picture, maybe for the first time, of who Jesus really is. And Lord, that's what we long for that you would draw us to this Jesus who, as Aaron reminded us, is more beautiful and believable than we really believe. So we pray now that you'd help us to see that, to believe that, to respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about this story, I want to think about a couple questions. First, how is this response... Or how is this a response to the lawyer? Jesus responds in two ways, with a question and then with a parable. So we're going to look at that. How is this a response? And then we're going to 
explore why does Jesus answer this way? In other words, why does he tell this story about being called to care for this man who's fell among robbers and is half dead? Why? Why are we called to that? But then beyond that, we want to ask, who are we in the parable? Because I think our assumption actually misses one of the most important points. And it has to do with who we think we are, who we think the lawyer is in the parable. And then we explore that, we'll come to understand, where is Jesus in this parable? Where is Jesus in this parable? Now, as we, as we explore this, we're going to start with this question and then the parable, right? So the question, like most of the questions that God asks in the Bible, are not questions that God asks or that Jesus asks because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus knows the answer to the question, but he wants the lawyer to think about the answer. Now, the guy gives a good answer, doesn't he? Jesus says it's a good answer, and it's actually a better answer than you might think, because in giving this answer, the lawyer shows that he really does understand the Old Testament better than you might think, because the love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is one passage. Love your neighbor as yourself is another passage. So he understands how to put passages together. He's not just quoting one verse. He actually has this understanding of the overall picture of the Old Testament to understand what we're called to do, right? And, and then the guy, of course, responds to Jesus' commendation by trying to then, even though he understands at one level, he wants to kind of worm his way out of it by trying to limit what it means to have love for your neighbor, right? We get that, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to understand why then, in response to Jesus, or in response to the second question of the lawyer, who then is my neighbor, why doesn't Jesus just tell him? Why does he tell this parable? And I think what's important to understand is the role of parables in the ministry of Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. Parables are not like Aesop's fables, they're not little moral stories with one point to make. They're not illustrations. They are little bombs, little bombs that Jesus is planting that are going to blow up your assumptions. And here's the thing to understand. Jesus does not use parables until resistance to his ministry begins. In the first year of his public ministry, he tells no parables. He begins parables when people are out to kill him. And in doing this, he actually is, is sort of sneaking in the back door. Because the way parables work is not just with one grand point. The way parables actually work is there generally are as many points as there are main characters. Parables generally have as many points to make as there are main characters, and part of the way they work is by finding yourself in the parable and asking who is Jesus in the parable, right? So this, this lawyer doesn't get it, but here's what I would submit. 
we often don't get it either. Right? I mean, I think it's important to understand why this lawyer wants to test Jesus. Because Luke wants to make sure you get that, right? I mean, he says, look at verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to just himself, justify himself, in case you missed that. There's a reason that he's testing Jesus. He believes he understands the question and the answer. He wants to see if Jesus understands the right answer. And Jesus won't fall into that trap. Instead, he responds to the parable. He responds with the parable because he knows the guy isn't interested in the answer. The guy just wants to justify himself. He's not interested. He's not even open to the suggestion that he might not understand everything there is to understand. So he stands, significant in the Bible, he stands to test Jesus rather than sitting humbly to ask Jesus his question. In this culture, if you want to learn something, you come and you sit at the feet of someone. So standing to test Jesus is significant. But why does he want to test Jesus? As I said, he thinks he already knows the answer. And here's the thing. The problem with religious people is they're often so obsessed with doing that they can't even hear God's actual questions. The problem with religious people is they're often so obsessed with doing that they can't actually even hear the actual question. I had a, man, I, I, I tell this story pretty regularly of, you know, it's just kind of one of these conversations I have over and over with students at Belmont. Most of you know that's my main gift and calling is to be able to work with students at Belmont. Many of them have come from Christian backgrounds, right? And so we'll often have this conversation, usually somewhere along that first year, when these students who were like the shining stars of their youth group or whatever, maybe the worship leader at their church, half of them, you know, and they come here and they're trying to live the Christian life as well as they can, and they're getting kind of discouraged and they feel like you know, they're, they're just beating their head against the wall. I, and I'll have this conversation all the time. They'll be like, you know, I used to pray and I used to read my Bible, but now I'm here and I, I'm really not doing that very much. And I'll often ask this question. Well, tell me, let's kind of back up here. Tell me, what do you think it means to be a Christian anyway? And almost every time they answer somewhere like this, they usually will look down <laughs> because they know that the answer they're about to give is not a good answer. But it's the only one they know. They'll look down and be like, well, I think it means to try to, to read your Bible and to pray and to go to church and share the gospel. I was like, okay, those are all great things that Christians should do. But that's not the question I asked. I didn't ask, what does it mean, what do Christians do? I asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? And when you think about Christianity, all you really think about is, what am I supposed to do? And you know you're not doing it. And so you don't really know where do you go from here. No wonder... No wonder you look down and no wonder you don't want to read the Bible or share the gospel because it's making you miserable. And the problem is you don't even hear the question. Because I asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I've never had somebody give me a truly good answer to this question. What would a good answer be? Well, it means, I would say it means to be one who God has set his love on before the foundation of the world that he sent Jesus at a time, and this is Galatians, when the time had fully come, 
to die, to be born of the law, born of a woman, to die so that we might be justified. He sent his spirit to seal that redemption to us and adopt us as his children. We've now been justified, sanctified, adopted, glorified, right? Nobody thinks about that. And you know what's fascinating? Uh, literally, the, just the other day, I was having a conversation with a freshman. I, I, don't, I didn't really even know this, this guy, but he um, has been involved in our freshman Bible study, which is led by a couple of our upperclassmen students, and he wanted to talk to me now that the semester's come to an end about maybe joining our leadership team. And so I had a Zoom call with him, and I was talking to him, and he was telling me about how a church uh, had begun to, to interact with him and his buddies. He has like 10 of these guys have decided they wrote this kind of covenant together, and they get together, uh, and they meet every week for prayer and Bible study. I was like, cool, you know, what, tell me what you do. How do you structure that time? He said, well, we spend about 45 minutes in the Word. I was like, that's good. And then we spend an hour and 15 minutes confessing our sins to one another. I'm like, oh, okay, tell me about that. He said, well, you know, this pastor gave us these questions that we're supposed to, to ask each other. I was like, really? I'd be curious to see those questions. And he sent me the questions. Now, these are all fine questions about things Christians should do. Can I read a few of these questions for you? How have your spiritual disciplines been this past week? How has purity been? Have you had any corrupt speech? Are you harboring any bitterness? Are you tithing faithfully? Have you been looking, praying for ways to share your faith? Anything else you would like to confess? And the final question, you probably know what it is. Have you lied about any of the answers to the, to the first questions, right? And I was like, okay, those are all fine questions, but what's missing, guys? Jesus! <laughs> like, I'm like, if you're not growing in your understanding of Jesus and what he's done, this isn't going to last long. Like, you can be a college freshman all fired up because 10 of your buddies want to covenant together and ask themselves these questions. This isn't going to sustain you for a life. You know, Aaron and I have a, a common friend, a man named Steve Garber. And he wrote a, a wonderful book, Fabric of Faithfulness, where he asked this question. How is it that college students in particular can kind of get a sense of being called to love the world. The way he talks about it is, do you see your education as a passport to privilege or as implicating you in the problems of the world? And if you catch that vision, that what you've been given means that you're implicated and you have to actually be about bringing shalom, working, praying for the kingdom, not only is it important to see that, but how will that be sustained over your lifetime. See, it's one thing to be captured by that vision when you are a single college student with lots of energy and lots of time. That's a very different question when then you're 30 year old and you got two little kids, right? When you actually try to love the world and you find that the, the, world, the world often doesn't respond well. When you try to care for the poor and they keep doing stuff that you're like, why are you doing that? How will you be sustained in loving? And you see, that's why we need to dig deeper into this parable. Because if you just see this parable as Jesus renewing a call for you to do this and do that, you're missing the important truth that will actually sustain you in this, right? Now, certainly the call to love your neighbor, it's important that you understand why the Bible calls us to that. And the Bible generally gives two answers 
to why we're called to love our neighbor and who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is everybody, right? Jesus does not let the lawyer get away with trying to, to define neighbor in, in, in a sort of restricted kind of way. You know, yes, the guy was stupid to be going down this road at this time, but the Samaritan doesn't say, what were you thinking, right? Like the, the, the sort of the myth of, of the deserving poor, like that's not in this parable, okay? He's not, <laughs> Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, what the Bible says about this is two things. All people are made in God's image, right? This is Genesis chapter 9, right? That the image of God is still in all men, all mankind, even after the fall. James 3, the Bible forbids cursing men. Why? Because they've been made in God's image. So that's clearly taught in the Bible. That we are to love because all people are made in God's image. And while many people today think that that's just assumed, honestly, truthfully, historically, that is a gift and an insight that came into the world through Christianity. Without a doubt. You can read a fascinating book by a professor, Larry Hurtado. It, it doesn't have a very catchy title, but it's a wonderful book. It's called, Why in the World Would Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? <laughs> <laughs> they needed some marketing help, you know, but it's an amazing little book. He basically is like, look, everybody is like sort of historically, a lot of people have tracked like the rise of Christianity, but what nobody really wants to ask is why would a particular person actually become a Christian when it brought them no actual increase in social status? It didn't provide any economic benefit. It only brought negative things in their life, and yet people became Christians by droves. Why? What was it about Christianity? And, and it's a fascinating book, and I, I won't tell you everything he says, uh, but, but one of the things he says is, look, Christianity was often criticized as being a religion for slaves and women. And he says, well, why do you think that is? Maybe because it was good news. And this is part of the good news, that all people are made in God's image, not just the rich and powerful, Okay. But the second reason the Bible gives for why we're called to love our neighbor and not shrink who our neighbor actually is, is because we ourselves have been the recipient of God's mercy. Right? It's, it's here, right? We're called to care for the poor and the broken because we ourselves have been loved when we were without hope. And the, the parable is teaching that too, but only when you ask who the Samaritan in the parable actually is and who we are. See, what is our true spiritual condition? Jesus is trying to get at that, but the lawyer misses it. He's mad. You see at the end, he gets one part of the parable. He gets the point that he's not being a good neighbor. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. That's how much he hates the Samaritan. All he can say is the one who showed him mercy. But he's still mad as heck, isn't he? But he misses what Jesus is trying to show him. What if you're not the person going by the side of the road, passing people by? What if you're actually the helpless one who's been beat up. 
You think you've got it all together. What if you don't? Can you possibly consider that? And if you don't, because Jesus has basically just showed you, if you think that loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor is what the law requires, I got news for you, buddy. You're not doing it. Reminds me of my college students. They always want to ask this question, especially when I teach my class on hymnology. And anybody that's taught students will, will recognize this question. Hey, uh, 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 teacher, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> and here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, this is on the test, and yes, you failed. <laughs> Sorry. You don't even get a chance to study because you've already failed. You don't even need to take notes. You already know it. But what you don't realize is that you failed. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? See, the lawyer, like most religious people, assumes that he's one of the people who walks by. And in one sense, he is. And he's failed. But what if he thought of himself as the man beaten up by robbers and left for dead? What if he understood himself as somebody who needs a rescue? See, Jesus is trying to get this guy and all of us to see that we can't do what's needed. That we are actually like this guy, left for dead on the side of the road, and so we need to ask, who will help us? And Jesus says, it's not the religious people, it's the Samaritan, the hated outsider who provides the true help. And that is a shock. The hated outsider is the one who provides true help. What kind of help? Well, the answer comes through seeing who the good Samaritan in the parable actually is. See, who are the Samaritans? Samaritans are these religious half-breeds. They're the people that when Israel was taken off into exile, there were some Israelites left behind, and then the Assyrians move in these other people and, and encourage this intermarrying. And so you've got the, the Samaritans. I mentioned this when we talked about the woman at the well. Like, they're, theologically, they're off. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible, so they got bad theology, right? They don't believe the rest of the Old Testament. They believe that, that this is the way to worship, not worshiping over at the temple. There's all kinds of problems. But most of all, they're hated because they're not pure, Okay? And at this point, remember, Jesus doesn't start telling parables until resistance has risen. And you see it in this story, even if you didn't know that, you can see it here. The guy's trying to test Jesus. He's not interested in worshiping Jesus. Jesus is this outsider. And what does is, what is this outsider here do in the story? Well, he bandages the wounds, applies oil and wine. And don't you know, if this guy understood more than just what he was supposed to do, but understood the promises of God from the Old Testament, he might remember God's promise in Hosea chapter 6 to bind up the wounds of his people. To this guy that wants to test Jesus, Jesus says, you need a rescue from the outcast you can't stand. And here I am to rescue you. Jesus, you see, is the hated outcast, the despised one who comes to help those who've been beaten up and have no ability to help themselves. 
Now, I think I've told you before about this guy, Kenneth Bailey, wonderful New Testament scholar, specialist in parables and Middle Eastern culture. And he, I heard him actually talk about this parable one time in a seminar that I took with him up at Calvin College years ago. And he said, you know, think of it this way. Imagine you're kind of in the Old West, like Dodge City, right? And, and whether this is true to the actual situation or it's just the movie version, just to put your, imagine the parable this way. Because it's hard for us to put ourselves into the kind of setting of this parable and really understand why it's so shocking. Uh, imagine if you've got, you know, a cowboy with arrows in his back and a Native American picks him up, puts him on his horse and carries him into Dodge City. Like, do you understand what a risk it is for a Samaritan to pick up a beaten up Jewish guy and bring him to an inn? There are all kinds of assumptions that are going to be there. This is a risky thing to do. Everyone would assume that the Samaritan has been involved in the crime and he would be lucky Ken Bailey argues, to be escape with his life. But not only does the Samaritan do that, he comes back the next day and pays all the toad. Do you not see what's going on here? Jesus does so much more than these religious leaders who pass by, who can't even be inconvenienced. Guys, Jesus did so much more than just inconvenience himself. Right? He's the one who binds our wounds and takes it upon himself to pay whatever is owed. Here's what Jesus says. Whatever is lacking, charge it to my account. Charge it to my account. Oh, we need to hear that today, don't we? <laughs> Jesus is willing to pay all that's owed or ever will be owed. He does not say to us as we're lying there helpless, you know, you really should have been more careful. You shouldn't have got yourself into such a mess. You really don't deserve my love, and you certainly don't deserve my dying in your place. And here's the question, friends. What do you hear Jesus saying, the real Jesus saying, when you're lying half dead at the side of the road? Do you hear him asking, why should I help you when you don't love other people? Why should I give my life for you when you don't even interrupt your schedule for others? Do you see him as the priest who doesn't want to foul his fine garments and who's really involved in too much important work to stop and help someone like you? If that's who you think the real Jesus is, let me just say, open your eyes and gaze on the real Jesus, right? See, legalism, being focused on what we need to do, can never stir the kind of costly love that we're required to give. And it certainly can't sustain it over a lifetime. Only the love of Jesus, the despised outcast who doesn't just risk his life, but gives his life for those who are helpless. Romans Chapter 5 says it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God that's designed to lead to repentance. Jesus says here, the real issue 
is not what you need to figure out about who your neighbor is. That's important, actually. But even more important, I would say, are you aware of who has become the true neighbor to you? And you will never be the neighbor you should be, at least not for long, until you've seen the one who became a neighbor to you when you were left for dead at the side of the road with no help in the world. And that's why we don't just come to this parable, but we come again to this table. A reminder, not only of what Jesus has done, but of what we need. Now, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Aaron back up, and he's going to lead us in the prayers of the people uh, as we go, hopefully, even deeper into the teaching of this parable and what it means for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you even more for Jesus who embodies the true Good Samaritan. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.